Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom of God. It must make sense that we should study our Bibles in the light of the Jewish environment in which Jesus taught. Jesus, you see, was a first-century Palestinian Jew, and it's only reasonable that his teaching should reflect that Jewish environment. It must make sense that we should prepare to read about the teaching of Jesus by understanding something of the Hebrew roots of his faith. When Jesus came into Galilee announcing his gospel, the gospel about the kingdom of God, and commanding everybody to repent in view of the near approach of that kingdom, we're bound to ask the question, what was it Jesus was asking his audiences to believe? He used the term kingdom of God. That was a very well-known term in the first century Palestinian environment in which Jesus taught. The kingdom of God was the national hope of Israel. It was about as well-known to first century Palestinian Jews as the term the American Constitution would be known to us today, or the Tower of London in England, or the Houses of Parliament. Not to understand the term kingdom of God in the first century would be a bit like not understanding the meaning of the expression Uncle Sam or the U.S. Now, Christians make a great mistake if they fail to define that basic and most fundamental of all terms in the teaching of Jesus, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God means a kingdom, a real empire to be established, as all the prophets of Israel had foreseen, on this earth, with Jerusalem as its capital and the Messiah supervising a new world order of unparalleled peace and prosperity in which the nations will disarm and beat their weaponry into farm implements and the earth at that time will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Our Hebrew Bible, what we unfortunately call the Old Testament, that 77% of our scriptures are simply filled with accounts of a vision of this world renewed, purified, renovated, and re-established on a sound basis. There's going to be orderly government, a just society for the entire world, and that will be at the hands of the Messiah, who by that time will have returned from his temporary absence in heaven, and will be then commissioned by God to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and to reorder the world in a just society never before seen in the history of humankind. That indeed is what the kingdom of God means. It was a political message as well as a spiritual one. What Jesus required of his audiences was to believe that he indeed was the promised king of that kingdom, the Messiah of Israel. But today, few seem to realize that the kingdom of God message affects us worldwide. The announcement of the kingdom was an announcement that God has numbered the days of our present evil world systems. He's going to replace them by a divine government headed by the Messiah himself, establishing his kingdom in Jerusalem with effects across the entirety of the globe. It would be helpful to think of Jesus as recruiting executives for his kingdom. A king, you know, needs princes. He needs administrators to assist in the business of governing the world. Listen to the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 26. 
He who overcomes, said Jesus in this passage, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will grant authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Now, that's a pretty straightforward promise of political power, of an executive position in the coming kingdom. Again, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, we read this as a promise to the faithful. He who overcomes, said Jesus in this letter to the churches in Asia Minor, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus there again offers executive power, royal power to those who follow him faithfully. You see, this is not the promise of a recompense in some distant land far removed from this planet, in some super celestial city removed by millions of miles from this planet. No, this is a promise of an executive position in a worldwide super government to be organized by the Messiah at his return. Again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, we read as follows. I saw thrones and those who sat on them, and the power to judge was given them. And I saw those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And these came to life and began to reign with the Messiah for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. There again we see a picture of the faithful Christians being granted rulership in the future kingdom of God. That famous description of a thousand-year reign of Christ and his saints in the future has caused enormous problems of interpretation. All of that is quite unnecessary. Once we sense and grasp and understand the Jewish environment in which our Bibles come to us, you see, from a Jewish point of view, that's talking about a real kingdom on the earth in which Messiah rules with his company of saints. It's not talking about a so-called spiritual conversion now. We read there of people who have had their heads chopped off, and then they are seen coming to life, that's to say, coming to life from a real death, a literal death, and beginning to reign with Christ for a thousand years. We're not talking there about conversion or baptism, or even the rule of Christ in heaven now with the church. No, we're talking about the resurrection of the dead followed by the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's absolutely clear from the context. The people who came to life and began to reign with Christ were those who had previously been executed, put to death at the hands of the beast power because they had refused to take the mark of the beast or to worship the image of the beast. And because of this refusal, of course, they had died. They had been executed by a hostile government. Now, following that death, John sees their resurrection. They came to life. That's to say, they came back from death into life via resurrection, and they then began to reign in the thousand-year kingdom, the millennial kingdom, with the Messiah. That millennium, I have to tell you, is not something existing now. 
It's something which follows the resurrection of the dead. When John had finished describing the return to life from death on the part of those who had held faithfully to the testimony of Jesus, he then said, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. And by first resurrection he meant that coming to life from death by those who had been literally put to death at the hands of a hostile empire. And so you see, the thousand-year reign of Christ is an event post-resurrection, after the future resurrection, after the coming of Christ. Because as we know from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, and many passages of Scripture, the resurrection of the faithful Christians does not occur until the seventh trumpet blows, and the seventh trumpet does not blow until the arrival of Jesus Christ in splendor and glory in the future. It is after that resurrection of the dead at the second coming of Jesus that the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth with his saints will begin. You see, this passage in Revelation 20 must be taken in conjunction with its obvious parallel in Revelation 5, verse 10. There we find exactly the same idea of co-rulership with Christ, but more detail is given. We read in Revelation 5 and verse 10 that Jesus has gathered together a body of priests and kings and they will reign upon the earth. Surely now the comparison with Revelation 20 is obvious. Here we have people reigning with Christ for a thousand years. In Revelation 5 verse 10 they are said to reign upon the earth. The comparison and the parallel is quite clear. And both of these texts, of course, tie in beautifully with Jesus' own statement in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek are going to inherit the earth. To inherit the earth, in other words, is to rule on the earth, and it's to rule with Christ on the earth for the first stage of the kingdom of God, known as the thousand-year reign or the millennium. The early church and the New Testament itself was definitely pre-millennial. They believed with a passion that Jesus was coming back to inaugurate the kingdom of God after abolishing present evil human governments and replacing them with the government or the kingdom of God to be administered and supervised by himself in company with the faithful of all the ages. This theme is so all-pervasive and so fundamental throughout the New Testament it's a taken-for-granted by all the New Testament writers. It doesn't need to be stated on every line. The idea of the kingdom of God as the co-rulership of Messiah with his saints in the future, following the banishment of Satan and all his lies, and following the destruction of the Antichrist, is part of the furniture of first-century Palestinian Judaism, which Jesus and the apostles never questioned. Never for one moment did they doubt this basic apocalyptic messianic framework which they had inherited from the prophets of the Hebrew Bible whom they believed to be the inspired spokesman of God outlining and declaring his plan for our earth. One of the disasters which hit the Christian faith in the third century and the fourth century was the belief that the kingdom of God was no longer a future event associated with the second coming but was really the community of the faithful now. I agree, of course, that it's possible in some passages, in some few passages, to
to equate the church and the kingdom in the sense that the church is the kingdom of God in training. But to make that the primary definition of the kingdom of God is to make a considerable nonsense out of the teaching of Jesus. May I back up my point by quoting from the new Schaff Herzog Religious Encyclopedia in its article on the kingdom of God. The writer there says that the preaching of Jesus follows the Jewish scheme in regard to the kingdom. God is going to reward those who adopt a positive attitude towards the kingdom with a share in that future kingdom. By the kingdom of God, Jesus understood the establishment of the rule of God in the future. And this writer says the immediate future, and that's of course true. The kingdom of God is always on the horizon because none of us knows when we're going to die and therefore it calls for an immediate decision. But it was nevertheless in the future according to the teaching of Jesus. And the kingdom is associated, says this writer in the new Schaff-Herzog Religious Encyclopedia, it's associated with the general resurrection and judgment by a miracle of God and it's accompanied by a renovation of the world. The writer then refers to Matthew 19:28, and that text, of course, speaks of the new world when the world is reborn and of the apostles administering the new world with Christ as they sit on twelve thrones to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Many have pointed out, of course, that the word judge there really means to supervise or administer or to govern. That's the typical Hebrew usage of that word judge, as, for example, in the book of Judges, we find that they were really administrators or governors. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.